Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, friends. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles uh, or turn on your phones and your Bible app to Mark chapter 14. I want to start uh, this portion of our time by just taking a look at the story that we're going to be talking about together. Uh, My name is Michael, and I'm a member of this church, and I'm uh, delighted to have an opportunity to try to demonstrate or show some of the truth that's present in this text. So um, we're going to pick up with the events uh, right where we left off, if you were here with us last week. Uh, Things are heating up in Jesus's life, and we're approaching the end of his earthly ministry. There's only a couple days left. Uh, It is late Thursday night of the final week of his life, and we've seen him have the meal, and we've seen him have some prayers, and we've seen him have some conversations. We've seen him pray intensely alone with the Father, uh, sweating blood because he's in such deep anxiety. We've seen him arrested uh, because he was betrayed by one of his closest allies. And we'll pick up uh, the narrative right at the point of his arrest. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. I'm going to read all the way through verse 72. So let's take a look at what happens next. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she closely looked at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So far as I can tell, it is not possible to go on living without hope. Hope is uh, like oxygen for the soul. Many people have observed something similar. Christian ethicist Lou Smeads says, hope is to our spirits what oxygen is to our lungs. Lose hope and you die. 
says, they may not bury you for a while, but without hope, you are dead inside. The only way to face the future is to fly straight into it on the wings of hope. Hope is the energy of the soul. Hope is the power of tomorrow. And yet, if you, if you read the tea leaves, if you look around our world and, and pay some close attention to various cultures near and far, I don't think what you will necessarily find is an abundance of hope. Now, earlier this summer, I had the opportunity to go to Scotland for the very first time. Gorgeous. Every bit as green as you might imagine. All kinds of history, all kinds of beauty. And there was this one bridge in the city I was in called Aberdeen. And I noticed this bridge because it was beautiful, but it didn't like look beautiful at the time. Let me show you what I mean. I got a couple of pictures of this bridge for you. Here's a really old, it's about 100 years old. There's a classic picture of the Union Bridge. Here's a more modern picture of what it looks like today. So you can see that everything's kind of updated, but it's still kind of right there. If you looked up close, you'd notice some kind of ornate features and whatnot. This is what the bridge looks like today, however. This is a picture I took while I was standing there. There's this fence across this bridge, and if you look closely at a lot of the things that are placed on this fence, you'll notice different signs that say things like, it's not the bridge, it's the lack of services. If I had some money for every time I was told to get over it, I'd be a very rich person. For Kit, for Zoe, for Liam. The one before this had those four sheets of paper laminated uh, up against it, and they're all written in, uh, in handwriting, and I read the whole thing, and this woman tells her story of despair, of panic, of heartache, of hopelessness. I obviously was intrigued and saddened by this, and so I went, did some research afterwards, and I discovered not only the name of this bridge, but the story that actually put this fence up, because as you might have guessed, it had become a danger to the community. Why? Because over the last 10 years, over 100 people had jumped off of this bridge to their deaths. Wow. I think you probably know that it's not just a problem over there. I couldn't find numbers for 2018, but in 2017, right here at home, over 47,000 Americans took their own lives. Maybe you know this. Maybe you know that this is a couple thousand more than the year before and that the suicide rate has been increasing every year since the late 90s and that it's jumped over 30% in the last 20 years and that it's the second leading cause of death among Americans under the age of 35. That's, that's hopelessness. Suicide is, is a very real crisis, no doubt, no doubt touching some people in this room. But the truth is that it is really just one of many symptoms of hopelessness. And most folks may not necessarily be close to ending it, but maybe they live every day in smaller ways with the sense that nothing better is coming, nothing better is on the way. But, but what could the problem of hope have to do with this trial of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with the story you just read? And I don't blame you. I'll tie it together in just a minute. Give me one more thought, if you would, to dig one level deeper. It seems to me that we need two kinds of hope, or maybe it's like one kind of hope with two sides. I don't know, but we need two kinds of hope in order not just to survive, but to flourish. What we need, first of all, is hope for a good life after death. We want to know that something better is coming after this world that we live in. This is why even if you talk to people who aren't religious, still many in our culture would say, do you believe that something's coming next? Yeah, probably. Do you think it's good? Yeah, probably. And I think I'll probably be there. We have this, we have this sort of built-in need to know that something better is coming, that no matter what's going on right now, I can look forward to something better in the future after I die. But it's not just after I die. We also need hope for while we're still alive. We need to know, we need to be able to believe that something better is coming in this life. Even if it's only a betterment of myself, we want to know that things are going to get better while, we're, while we are still here. So hope is a necessary 
and fragile thing. And the Bible certainly knows of the necessity as well as the fragility of hope, but the Bible places the emphasis on the truth and on the security of the hope that God makes available to us in Jesus. You have statements like the one in Hebrews 6, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And our text in Mark 14, I think, depicts for us the stability of our hope in the form of a story. Here's, to be clear, here's what I want to say. Here's what I think we're driving at from this passage all morning long. Our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. That, I think, is the truth we see demonstrated in this text. And what we're going to do is we're going to place close attention, especially to the characters in this story. No question these are real people in a real event, but they also might serve for us as symbols of some other real people, namely ourselves. So I think what you see in this story is a couple of versions of false hope. I think the first thing that I want to pay attention to here is the false hope of position. That's the word. Everybody say position. The false hope of position. Now, I'm not sure position is really like the perfect word to describe what we mean, but it will do. We mean here the hope that accrues to folks because they're part of the right group or because they carry the right title, or because they might otherwise be identified as having an inside track on better things ahead. And we need to begin by noting that pretty much all the people here in Mark chapter 14, the portion we read, are Israelites. Now, I want to be clear. I mean no anti-Semitism, to be perfectly transparent. The Jews are no more responsible for the death of Christ than you and me. And if you believe otherwise, then you may be a Bible studier, but you're not a Christian. Like theologically, this is beyond question. And historically, we'll get to the Italians next week. So this is not a question of like one person is worse than the other. But here at this midnight trial that we're studying today, we are looking at a young Jewish revolutionary, Jesus, standing in front of his own people. These people are Israelites. Now, the story of Israel began a couple millennia before the events that we're talking about right now. In about 1800 BC, when God chose one nation from among all the nations to be his own. When he came to this man, Abraham, and said, Abraham, you're going to be my guy, and your family's going to be my people, and I'm going to make you a great family. I'm going to make you a great people, a great nation, and I will bless you, and through you, I will bless all the nations in the world. Fast forward a couple generations, the descendants of Abraham are enslaved in Egypt, and so God busts them out of Egypt, and he gives them a constitution, and he gives them an identity, and he says, you are my treasured possession. You're more important to me than anyone. You are my holy nation. I've called you to be different from the world around you so that you might show them what life is supposed to look like, so that you might show them who I am. You are a kingdom of priests, he says. Which means as you live under my rule, with me as your king, you will serve as priests to the rest of the world. You will mediate my presence to those who need it, to those who were made in my image. This is the group of people that we're looking at right now. And speaking of the priesthood, you know, Israel was never meant to be led by a human king. The kingship is instituted a few hundred years later because of an act of rebellion on the part of the people. God was supposed to be her actual king, and the human leader was called the high priest. He was a representative of God who was called out and appointed by God from the line of Aaron, from the line of the priests. That's the people that we're looking at in Mark chapter 14. These are people who should get it. Do you get this? That when the going gets rough, position and title saves nobody. And we're going to look at each of these false hope and there are two forms. There's the general form and then there's the religious form. Even before considering religion, even before thinking about faith, we often rest in the hope of some title or label that we've been given or maybe even earned. Business owner, teacher, wife, accountant, 
coach, doctor, professor, board member, store manager, team captain, mother, father, grandparent, consultant, counselor, champion. And I'm not sure we think through this explicitly. It's not like we actually say, I know that I'll have a good afterlife because I'm a champion. Or I know that my life will be better because I just got a promotion. Well, maybe we do say that, but usually we're not so explicit with it. But you see it in how we defend ourselves. You come at me for something I've done wrong or that you think I've done wrong. Do you, do you even know who I am? We, we see it in, in the ways that we focus on improving proving one part of our life and the rest of our lives is falling apart. Oh, my family may be a mess, but things are going pretty well at work. And as long as I have this, as long as I keep things afloat, everything will tilt up for me eventually. You see it in what we would be crushed to lose. You never know how much position or labels or titles mean to you until you lose them. I don't know. I don't know if you've been able to see clearly enough to call this false hope, but that's precisely what it is. This is the basket into which we have placed all of our eggs. This is what we're counting on to see us through, to move us forward, to secure for ourselves a better future. Position. It has its own religious version as well. Maybe you, I, mean, I don't hear this phrase that much anymore, but maybe you are familiar with the phrase nominal Christianity. Nominal just means in name. So it's like somebody who's a Christian in name only, but, but not actually. I remember the first lesson I learned about nominal Christianity. Uh, when I was growing up in high school, my, my, my favorite teacher growing up was my high school history teacher named Mr. Ross. He was great. He loved history. He told great stories. He wore Birkenstocks with socks in them. He swore occasionally. He had a night job at Ranch Acres, Wine and Spirits. Like, he was an interesting person, okay? Loved Mr. Ross. Still love history to this day because of him. Legit, one of my favorite teachers of all time. But I remember, but not a man of faith. Like this was, he made this clear. But I remember this one time though, he was talking about different folks coming over. He was talking about kind of the melting pot of America. Then he was referring to different groups of people. And I remember, I remember, I distinctly remember him self-referring, even with his own hand saying, so, you know, Christian, and then you have Muslim and Buddhist. And I remember thinking to myself, brother, I know you and I like you, but you are not a Christian. <laughs> Surely we know, like most of us, I think, know that you can't consider yourself a Christian just because you're of white European descent. God help us, I hope we know this. But we might be tempted to forget the more subtle reality that just because you call yourself a Christian, just because you're one of them church people, this doesn't mean that you wouldn't crucify God's son all over again if given the chance. Remember, proximity does not equal discipleship. These are these are God's people spitting at the Messiah, blindfolding the Son of God and hitting him and beating him and mocking him. Is, is nominal faith, is saying you're a person of faith enough to secure you a better future in this life? Well, do you know anybody who's gone to church for a long time but doesn't seem more characterized by self-control and peace and joy and love? I do. Is nominal religious identity, being a Christian in position, is this enough to secure you a desirable eternity? I mean, this is a more sensitive one, so I'm just gonna let Jesus speak for himself. Matthew 7, verse 21 and following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look how religious we are. And then I will tell them plainly, Jesus said, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So much for the false hope of position. 
But a lot of us hear this and we're, we say, man, that, that's true. Like, amen. Like, whoo, that's a little bit serious. But I'm in. Like, it's nothing to apply to me because I'm in. Like, I'm really into this. I'm, I'm committed to this. Like, this, this is not just something I say. This is something I do. Awesome. But you also need to pay attention to what we see in this story, secondly, and that's the false hope of passion. Peter's not like the rest of the Israelites. He's not like the rest of the disciples. He's certainly not like the high priest. This man has some fire. You've got to give him that. And we need to be careful when we talk about Peter at this particular phase of his life because I think it's really easy to misunderstand him. Just like run the tape back a bit because it's been an intense couple of days for him. A lot of high highs, a lot of low lows. You're at the supper with Jesus and he's talking about how everything is about to be fulfilled and he's about to bring liberty to his people and, and the second exodus is coming and it's great. And then he sort of has this thing with Judas where it looks like it wasn't very cool, but you don't really know what's going on. And he leaves and then he says to everybody else, just so you guys all know, you're all going to abandon me here pretty soon in my time of need. Oh no, 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 not I, Lord. Like that's not something I'm gonna do. Oh no, to a man, they all said, no, no way, not a chance. No, 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 you, you are, I promise. And then Peter's like, no, Jesus, not me. Maybe these other fools, like I know, like, I mean, yeah, you're probably right, but not me. He, he says, I, could, I will die with you before I leave you. It's not happening, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, 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 here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna tell you the truth, bud. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Then they go from there to this place of prayer and Jesus posts up most of the guys and then he brings Peter, James, and John. So Peter, well, maybe I'm still on the inside, okay? So he brings Peter, James, and John closer, which is cool because you're with Jesus in this moment of, of, of intimate darkness, but then he falls asleep. Then he wakes up though when Judas is there and there's the arrest. And don't forget, he's the one that cuts off Malchus's ear. And don't misunderstand. This isn't like Peter taking out a paring knife and trying to get the ear. No, this is Peter grabbing the sword in the sheath and trying to take off Malchus's head. Then lucky for Malchus, he turns just in time and it only takes off his ear. Peter's ready to fight. He's not messing around. He doesn't care if he goes down. He's gonna go down swinging. And, and then Jesus says, stop, like put your sword away. And he picks the ear up and he puts it back on Malchus's head. And Peter's like, what in the world's going on? So just like everybody else, he runs away. But then he comes back. This is what you have to understand about Peter. Then he comes back. Make no mistake, Peter is in danger in this story. It's not that far from Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house, to the courtyard out in front. It literally, like you're looking down a balcony at the fire where Peter's standing. Peter is in danger in this moment, and he's in danger in this moment because he's choosing to put himself in danger. And he's putting himself in danger because he's not ready to sell Jesus out. He is in this. You gotta know, man, you gotta understand that the only reason that Peter denied Jesus so dramatically is that he tried harder than everybody else not to give up on him. It's like, it's like a meme. You want somebody to love you the way Peter loves Jesus. You do. This is dedication. This is commitment. This is, this is sacrifice. This is passion. You know, the word passion comes from the Latin word passio, which means to feel deeply, but it often has this connotation of suffering. So we call it the passion of Christ. But here it's the passion of Peter. He's willing to suffer. He is, there's at least a part of him. He's willing to bleed. Are you this committed to anything in your life? Well, well yeah, something. We're all willing to bleed for something. And again, we can see this passion in both a general and in a religious sense. In a general sense, the, 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 all of us care deeply about something. All of us give, it could be a cause for you. Maybe it's an activism cause. 
Maybe it's a, like a cause in the community. Maybe it's a company thing. It could be a task or a hobby, something that you've set about doing or that you've just sort of uh, enjoy on the side. Or it could be a group of people. For a lot of us, it's family, this thing that we're most committed to. And nobody ever thinks, I'm putting my hope in gaming or golf or activism or reading lots of books or even taking care of my family. But what do you think we're doing? There's so much of our thinking process, I don't even think we're aware of. This might be case in point. Like, think this through. If I am going to devote myself to something, the simple psychological fact is that I do think that success or proficiency or effort in this thing will somehow make my life better. Otherwise, I'd do something else. And to some degree, this is fine, but when you start to lean into this, to be the thing that secures for you a better future, man, that's, that's shifty. That's unstable. That, that's false. It's not just for a better life either. I really don't think it is. So, so I've never thought it was a great evangelism strategy to just talk, go up to somebody and be like, hey, if you died tonight, where would you go? It's a little bit of a, like, often unhelpfully invasive question, but I've had these kind of conversations at times, and typically when I have these kind of conversations, somebody's like, well, I mean, I think if there's a good place, I'll probably go to it. Why? Well, because I'm a good person. How do you know you're a good person? Because I take care of my own. Because I work hard. Because I look after things that are within my circle of influence. Yeah, I get it, but this is what it looks like to place your hope in your own passionate commitment to whatever you think matters. Of course we do this with Jesus, too. Of course we have this, this false hope of religious passion. If you do this with Jesus, you think you're on another level, and maybe you are. But the point here, please understand, the point here is not you're, pa you're passionate about the wrong things, and you need to be passionate about the right things. Maybe that's true, and maybe you need to hear that, but that is not the truth that comes out of this text. The point here is, I don't care what you're passionate about, even it's for Jesus. If you're looking to your passion as the basis of your hope for a good tomorrow and a great forever, you will be disappointed. And see, here's the thing. Peter's passion eclipsed ours, all of us. I don't know if I'd still be near but his passion couldn't protect, could not protect him from himself. Like, I think we need to be careful not to cast Peter as too much of a weakling, as too much of a wimp, but punches must not be pulled. Peter failed miserably, and it hurt. Look at Luke's version of the story, Luke 22, verse 60. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Look at verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Can you hear the rooster crowing? Do you see the look on Jesus' face? I can't imagine. I really can't imagine. I know we've all had similar moments. I know we've had moments when we've not done what Jesus wanted us to do. And maybe you've had a moment this intense. I don't know. Maybe you have. Like, we've all failed. But this. And I've always wondered why Mark's gospel doesn't include this detail. Don't forget, Mark's gospel is based on Peter's preaching. Mark was kind of, a, kind of an understudy of sorts. He was kind of a helper to Peter, and he traveled around with Peter, and Peter would preach, and Mark would listen, and he'd take notes, and then he'd use these notes. He used these notes to, to write the gospel of Mark. And I've always wondered, like, why, why in the gospel of Mark, when we so often get Peter's internal perspective on things, why, why is this detail not in there? Like, maybe when Peter got to this point in the story, even years later, even on the other side of being fully restored to Jesus, maybe it was still too painful to say the words, and then he looked at me. 
I can't wait to look into the eyes of Jesus. I can't wait. But I sure don't want to see this. And I don't think you do either. And I think if we said that to Peter, he'd say to us, good, you don't want to know what that's like. And then I think he'd say, so let me give you some hard-won wisdom. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't trust too much in your good intentions. Don't think that in your time of trial, the strength within is enough to protect you from the arrows flying overhead. Don't put your hope in passion. Don't put your hope in yourself. Put your hope in Christ. That's what I think Peter would say. And so you see here, thirdly, the true hope of Christ. And I mean true in that classic sense of reliable, secure, faithful, enduring, stable, unbreakable, bulletproof. We see this stated for us once more in Hebrews chapter 6 as we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Cool, that's great, but if this hope is so firm and secure and if this past passage is indeed about hope, I kind of like to see it in this story, this story where the false hopes are so manifestly on display. Do we see any reason to hope in this trial of Jesus? <laughs> so glad you asked. Look again at Jesus' conversation with the high priest in Mark 14, 60 through 62. It says, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Pay close attention to Jesus' words. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. If there, has been, if there has been a more pregnant answer to a disingenuous question in all of history, I am not aware of it, but it is easy to miss because it is loaded, and it is loaded with allusions to the Old Testament. There's probably about a dozen passages that Jesus has in mind when he says this, and that he knows everybody there understood, and then we probably don't understand well enough because our Old Testaments are kind of opaque to us, but I want to just pull out a couple of these for you. The two that I think are most obviously what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being at the right hand of the mighty one, coming on the clouds of heaven as the son of man. I think Jesus is thinking about Psalm 110, which says, verses one through three, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit where? At my right hand. It says the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. And I think Jesus is thinking about Daniel chapter seven, this great vision that Daniel has of the various nations that are trying to rule the world, the empires of his time and into the future. And then there's this vision of God up in the throne. And then there's this other figure who shows up, Daniel seven, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Man, I know there's a lot going on here, and we don't have time to unpack it all, but that's okay because the Holy Spirit is your teacher. I just hope that the brightest ray shines through. I hope you see what these things hold in common. I hope you understand what Jesus is saying, that he's the prophesied king and his unstoppable kingdom is about to arrive. You know, the high priest responds to Jesus by tearing his clothes and accusing him of blasphemy, not because he misunderstands what Jesus says, but because he fully understands what Jesus says. 
I am the king who has returned to my rightful territory and I'm ready to take back control from all pretenders and presence appearances notwithstanding, y'all are about to lose. Now this is not a message of hope for those who oppose Jesus, but for the rest of us it is precisely what our hearts most need to hear. Our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. Now, because we don't have all morning and because I want to give you something practical to take home with you, I'm going to have to summarize for us what the Old and New Testament say about this hope that Christ makes possible. I'm going to give you a bit of a kind of an overview sketch. If you're, a non-belie- if you're not a believer in Jesus, I just want to lay this out for you. Like, this is what we're inviting you to say yes to. And if you are a believer, like, this is what you have leaned into. Our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. How does that work? Well, there's two sides to hope, like I said before. Hope for eternity, that's answered by Christ for us. How do I know that, like, if there is this good thing coming next that we hope and that we believe is, how do I know that I'm there? Not because of your own merits. It's Christ for us. It's Jesus going to the cross in your place. It's his willingness to die before he is raised again. It is the sacrifice that makes it possible for you to be restored to the Father. In this, you find your hope. But that's not all. We also have hope for right now, hope for today, hope for a better something, even in this life, even if it's only a better me. And how do we have this hope? Because Christ in us. It's not just that Jesus makes it possible for us to look forward to a better future. It's that he actually fills us with his own spirit such that we have the power to step into the hope made available right now as the kingdom comes to earth, even in small forms in us. And so what do we do with this today? Like, where do you go here? I think in these hopes that Christ provides, you find the basic rhythm of the Christian life. The first thing that we do is we receive. Every day we begin by receiving. If you want to be a person who does business with God, understand that the first thing that you do is is always not, let me do something for you, God. Let me show you how much I care about you, God. Let me, let me devote my energies to your cause, Lord. Let me become a better person. No, 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 no. The first thing you do is you say, all right, Lord, I received the grace that you have given me that I don't deserve. It's very humbling. That's what you do first every day. And then you replace, you receive and you replace. You replace the old you with the new you. The old me that's driven by the power of self with the new me that's driven by the power of Jesus. And so in some way, yes, this is, I'm not gonna do the dumb thing, I'm gonna do the wise thing. I'm not gonna do the selfish thing, I'm gonna do the loving thing. I'm not gonna do the wrong thing, I'm gonna do the right thing. It's just a matter of obedience, but it's not just you need to go and do this, it's now you have the power to go and do this. It is turning off that faucet that energizes the me that's driven by me and opening up that, 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 that flow of water that moves forward the me that is driven by Jesus. Receive and replace, that's the rhythm. That's hope in action. There's this children's story by a guy named Jack Kent called uh, There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. Love this story. It's a story about this little boy, Billy Bixby, and Billy comes into his room one day and he sees there sitting on his bed a little dragon about the size of a house cat, nice little guy, pretty cute. And he goes to his mama and he says, mom, there's a dragon in my room. And the mom says what you would say, there's no such thing as dragons. And so this dragon grows and eventually it begins to become a problem. One day it eats all of Billy's pancakes. (laughs) Then it's like so large, it starts to fill the house and mom's trying to vacuum, but it's a pain in the neck because she has to like go in and out to avoid this thing. Still doesn't acknowledge that it exists though. 
Well, it continues to grow so much to a point where it starts to grow out the doors and out the windows, and he actually then starts walking, and he takes the house away from where it always was. And one day, dad comes home, and the house is gone, and the mailman says, actually, here's where they went, and he goes to the place where they went, and he joins his wife and his son up on the neck of this dragon that is now protruding from the attic, and they're sitting there on top of this thing, and the mom still refuses to acknowledge that there's a dragon, and the Billy's just fed up with this. So finally, he says, mom, there is a dragon. And the mom reluctantly agrees. And as soon as she agrees, that thing starts to shrink. Gets a little smaller, walks the house back to where it belongs, continues to shrink until eventually, once again, it is sitting on Billy's bed. And by this time in the story, everyone agrees on two things. Number one, dragons exist. And number two, they're much more enjoyable when they're the size of a house cat. Until the end of the book, the mom asks this question. Why did he have to get so big? And Billy answers, well, maybe it's because he wants to be noticed. Y'all, if we don't pay attention to this story, if we don't pay attention to hope, it, it will threaten to take over your life. Look, we've named the dragon today. What you do with the thing, where you go from here as you move through the rest of your life and on into eternity, that's up to you. Father God, I ask that you would give us indeed the grace and the insight to respond faithfully. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.